ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. On the detail today, a closure team is heading to the TY Point aluminium smelter next week. We've been losing money for some time and we need to make a fundamental improvement in the financial status of the smelter. But is this another bluff from its Australian majority owner, Rio Tinto? No, they're playing brinksmanship. They're not bluffing. They'll shut it down if they have to. But it is brinksmanship and it's something the company's been particularly good at forever. It employs a 1,000 people. It makes a billion dollars in export revenues. It pumps $406 million a year into Southland. So it's been great for Southland, but historian Aaron Fox says it was a bad deal for the rest of the country. It was a poor arrangement negotiated badly by the government. They messed up. This is more than a story about a business that makes aluminium. It uses 13% of the country's electricity. That's 776,000 households worth. It can't be told without also telling the story of Lake Manapouri. Aaron calls it the kilowatt cult. It's that amazing concept where if you see a number with so many zeros after it, you can think, well, if we generate that much electricity... How much money can we make from it? And not only that, New Zealanders thought that water and electricity was white gold, so that if this was our natural resource, then the world would be banging on our door wanting to come here and use it and make us wealthy. Aaron did a thesis that took 13 years to finish on Tiwai and Manapouri Dam. I'm from Invercargill originally, and when I was growing up in the early 70s, Tiwai Point had just been constructed and it was the biggest thing that had hit Southland. Southland economy was really booming with agriculture, and it was a fun time to be around. My dad was involved with the construction of the TY Point smelter from the regulatory side of things, so it was one of my earliest memories was seeing the smelter. And also in Southland we had the Save Manapuri campaign as well. It was the flip side to development. It was a good local story that no one else had told. And that's the interesting thing, isn't it, because... Nearly 50 years after it opened and started operating, a lot of people wouldn't know that history and the connection with Manapouri. It is 50 years since Manapouri started producing electricity. And it's 50 years since the Save Manapouri campaign started in Invercargill. But people don't actually, as you say, know the connection between those two things, where a development on, on the one hand and a national conservation movement on the other are inextricably linked, and then at the side of it there is the T.Y. Point aluminium smelter. It's a, it's a really complex story. It's a great story, but the details got lost over the last 50 years. If you were around in the 70s, you'd remember this hit single, Damn the Dam, by John Hanlon. It was adopted by Save Manapouri as the protest song against the damming of the lake for the hydropower station. The issue divided in Vicargal. There were those people who were pro-development and possibly a smaller number who were wishing to see the environment protected. And somewhere in between were those people who could see both sides of the story. But the thing is that TY, as you say, has been great for Southland. So surely it's a good news story, isn't it? It was at the time. It was first um, opened in 1971. It was a great development for Southland. But if you go back all that time and think TY Point was supposed to be part of a national aluminium industry for New Zealand, which never happened. 
So let's go back to the beginning because it was in people's minds well, well before that. Well, you can actually date it back to 1903 when the New Zealand engineer Peter Hay and a Californian engineer, uh, Lemuel Morris Hancock, were touring New Zealand looking at the country's hydroelectric potential. I mean, it was electricity was still a, a very new industry or a new development in those days. In November 1903, they visited Manapori and Tianau. You know, by horse and cart and getting there by train and pottering across the lake on a little steamer, they were able to see that the huge um, expanse of the lakes and their height above sea level held potential for an electro-industrial development. How's that for foresight? That's incredible foresight, yeah. And his plan, 65 years later, came to fruition because um, through World War II and into the 1950s and 60s, aluminium became very important for aircraft production, for instance, missile production, certain consumer goods. And so from the 30s onwards, you see the various strands coming together, electricity in New Zealand, available bauxite deposits, and this international demand for aluminium for a variety of purposes. Yeah, again, these strands are coming together and people could turn back to New Zealand and say, right, well, now we have the, the raw material for an aluminium industry. Goodness me, New Zealand has this large power scheme waiting to be developed. The devastation that is the inevitable camp follower of all construction works is not an attractive sight in this hitherto untouched country. It is part of the price of progress, and progress at Manapuri is presenting a pretty large bill. The decision had been made as to how that bill would be paid. Now, after the years of doubt and indecision, this windswept wasteland of Tiwai Peninsula, opposite Bluff Harbour, is about to be subjected to activity as intense as any ever seen in New Zealand. Southland had never really seen American-style construction like that before. But before work can even begin on the actual smelter, one and a half million dollars worth of road, causeway and bridge must be built to link the site to Invercargill, 15 miles to the north. There's been various points in its history over nearly 50 years, many times, many, many times when people thought it was closing or jobs were being axed. The T.Y. Point aluminium smelter is cutting jobs again as it fights for survival. Or, you know, it seemed to be in trouble and it was changing hands, that kind of thing. The country's only aluminium smelters under heavy financial pressure from falling income and an unresolved standoff with Meridian Energy. It's been a real saga. Southland's breathing a little easier after the announcement that the TY aluminium smelter won't be shut down. A deal's been reached that'll keep the big employer going for some years yet. So when this latest announcement was made, one journalist called it a bombshell, but were you surprised? No, I, I wasn't surprised at all. I mean, at a very... Around that worm's eye view of things, it could be a surprise. So if you're going along on a day-to-day -day basis and suddenly there's an announcement from TY that we're not making the profit and our, our sort of elders and betters are coming in from overseas to have a look at the whole operation, whether it should continue or shut down, that could be a, a bit of a surprise. But the aluminium industry itself, the international context, it's not surprising at all. First point to make is that aluminium is a cyclical industry. In fact, just last year, the Prime Minister was there when the smelter restarted a fourth pot line after metal prices rose. The pot line had been closed for six years. It's always had this boom and bust cycle over about five years. So there's an undersupply, oversupply, undersupply, oversupply, and then it averages out quite nicely, which is why the aluminium companies are still going. The thing
thing with Manipuri is that it's just one part of the five stages in the production of aluminium, and it's the most expensive part. It's the part where no company would be able to make a profit solely from turning alumina into the metal aluminium by the application of copious amounts of electricity to burn off oxygen. There's nothing profitable in that. So in the five stages, they talk about vertical integration. So in this case, Rio Tinto and its uh, sister companies will own all of the stages of producing aluminium from the raw material to the final product. So when you mine it, that's very cost-effective. It's strip mining. When you refine it, that's, that's quite a dirty process. It's a chemical wash process, uh, the Bayer, Bayer process. That's done over in Australia. Then you smelt it, or actually re you reduce it. You burn the oxygen off, which is what happens at the white point. Then your most profitable parts are when you turn the aluminium metal into final products, prefabrication and fabrication. So that's where the aluminium industry starts to become worthwhile for a company. So you can have reduced costs getting it out of the ground and cleaning it up, massive costs to turn it into the actual metal, and your massive profits when you come to sell it. And so TY of its own as a business, terrible business model. As part of a larger industry, it's a very necessary aspect of producing aluminium. So, so I think from Rio Tinto's point of view, they've, you know, they've obviously got two options. If it's not economic for their overall productions, then they'll need to look at shutting it. And they talked about doing this in 2001, all those 18 years ago. And at that point, the end date for TY Point was going to be 2022. Money was even being put aside for the site cleanup. Now, I really don't know if anything's changed since then. The other thing is to look at uh, TY Point, as they've done over the years, and say we need the best deal we can get out of the power we buy to make aluminium. And we need to keep the pressure on the government or the state-owned enterprises, the other companies that operate um, the power stations, to get the best deal we can. But we need to keep the pressure on. I read somewhere that the government has subsidised cheap power to TY basically since it opened in 1971. Uh, yes and no, and that... Where the government has provided subsidies has been on the, the taxation side of it and tariffs on the goods coming in and going out. But the, the actual power price is related to the, the long-term take-and-use arrangements that TY has with the, with the power companies, or had with the government and now the power companies. The thing with, with TY is that, yes, it's 13% of the electricity produced in New Zealand. It's a huge slice of power but also they take a huge lump of electricity 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And I challenge anyone else to be that efficient at taking and using electricity. So that, then any consumer would get a bulk discount price straight out. It's common knowledge they get the lowest prices for electricity in this country. This is Meridian Chief Executive Neil Barkley. But they've told us clearly that they're looking for a price at significantly lower events. So, you know, if you look at these aluminium smelters around the globe, a lot of them are propped up by heavily subsidised electricity prices. That doesn't happen in New Zealand, nor should it. Um, but we think in the New Zealand context, they get a very fair price given their size and the nature of their operations. Also, it's almost 50-year arrangement. 
and it had incentives put in place when the arrangement was first concluded in 1963. Subsidies, yes, well, in recent times, the government offered uh, funding to, to TY to stay open. That was the $30 million in $30 million, yes. In the face of low aluminium prices and high electricity costs, New Zealand Aluminium Smelter, or NZAS, was considering closure. At the time, a $30 million sweetener from the government and a deal on cut price electricity with Meridian Energy kept the plant open. It's like everybody paying transmission costs to their home for electricity and when you think the transmission lines in some cases have existed for 100 years, people could ask why are we paying for the upkeep of transmission lines that have been well paid for over 50 years ago. In TY's case, there's a 160-kilometre transmission line from West Arm at Lake Manapouri through to TY Point. And over 50 years, I imagine, they've probably well and truly paid the price of putting that into place and even maintaining it. Uh, so the transmission pricing aspects of, the, of their electricity bill, they can look at it and say, well, look, we're actually subsidising what's happening elsewhere in the country. We're paying higher costs for the transmission of electricity to our smelter when we have really effectively paid for that infrastructure, well and truly paid for it. So why are we still paying a high rate where the only transmission facility we require is that dedicated 160-kilometre line from Manipuri to us? None of the rest of the national grid is of great interest to us, except the times where Manipuri can't supply the power we need and it's got to come in from another generator. Otherwise, we're inextricably linked to Manipuri. It's like a giant umbilical cord, and that's it. So they have an argument there, but it's not always one that finds great favour with people when they get their domestic power bills and see what they're paying in power. When I spoke to you yesterday, you said this came about because of the Cold War. Did I get that right? Correct, yes. Well, aluminium in its day was a strategic metal. So as I mentioned earlier, it was strategic for the production of military aircraft if you think of any American bomber or fighter plane, for instance, at the time, they're all gleaming metal. That's aluminium. It's a duralumin. So it's an aluminium alloy that's ex- exceptionally good for um, producing very strong, very light aircraft. Uh, missile production, likewise, aluminium was very useful for that. And so it became a strategic metal for Western nations, and therefore the companies that produced the aluminium became the darlings, if you like, of their, of their host countries. You're bringing in not only large companies with quite a lot of bargaining force behind them, but also the relationships they enjoy with our allied governments overseas. You can bring economic, political, diplomatic pressure to bear. It's us trying to play with the big boys. We're bringing our little power scheme into a very big sandpit. <laughs> got a fantastic operation here. It's world class in terms of the high purity, in terms of some of its safety performance and the low carbon nature and I think it's something we should be proud of. It has a massive positive impact in South and in New Zealand and we should get behind it. The CEO of NZAS, Stu Hamilton, says that this strategic review that's going to get underway from next week a closure yeah. team is coming to have a look at it. He says it's going to look at all options. It includes operating at status quo, and that also means that we need to have a cheaper power price all the way through to curtailment and also closure. What do you think are the options? Because the government has made it clear that there's going to be no more taxpayers' money going into it. It comes back to my idea that 
the smelter's not set up to make money. It's not the profit-making part of the whole aluminium industry. So really, all they can do is minimise costs and produce the aluminium as cost-effectively as they can. I guess the question is, are they bluffing? No, they're playing brinksmanship. They're not bluffing. They'll shut it down if they have to. But it is brinksmanship, and it's something the company's been particularly good at forever. Uh, when the initial negotiations happened in 68-69 to set the smelter up in New Zealand, they did just this. They didn't bluff. They just came in with a, a much stronger negotiating team and a better deal and a better argument. They're better at it. If it's shut down, what are the scenarios? Can Southland survive and does it mean that we'll all get cheaper electricity? Southland will always, always survive, they just have to diversify. Not too long ago, it was the least diversified regional economy in the country, aluminium and milk powder, really. There's got to be a lot of serious thinking down there as to what else can be done to attract people to live and work in Southland and do different things. And as Peter Hay said all those years ago about Manapuri, look to industries that haven't even been invented yet. Will it mean cheaper power for the rest of the country? No. I mean, Manapuri is designed specifically to produce continuous high-dose electricity for an industrial concern. It was designed by Bechtel Corporation for for the TY Point aluminium smelter. To convert that to the national grid, you won't get the efficiencies that TY enjoy right now. Does it offer other options for the use of that electricity? Yes, it does. The best use is probably another industrial concern. Would you like it to stay open? That's a very interesting question. I hadn't actually thought of the answer to that one. I mean, uh, coming from Southland, it's part of the landscape. So, yes, from a sentimental point of view, yes. From a practical point of view, no. From a practical point of view, I would like to see it not shut tomorrow, but I think looking ahead that we could replace it with something that uses Manapuri's power more effectively, where we can add more value. For the government, for the people of New Zealand... The whole Manapuri and Tianao deal has never been to New Zealand's benefit. It, it was a poor arrangement negotiated badly by the government in the late 1960s. I say that in the thesis. They messed up. They wanted to link themselves into the international markets of the day by attracting an aluminium industry here with the, the lure of cheap electricity so that we'd have this complete integrated aluminium industry from aluminium smelting to producing goods, never happened. Why didn't it happen, though? The the company never intended to do that. You locate your processing facilities close to where your markets are, and in the case of aluminium, that was always going to be Southeast Asia, Japan and elsewhere. So they came here because the electricity was cheap and they had the port facilities and they could actually arrange to move the product around... uh, quite cheaply. So they were never going to bring their aluminium fabrication plants to New Zealand. It just wasn't an option. They never thought that way. It's fascinating to see it come to some sort of conclusion now, yeah. one way or another, or coming to the next stage of its history in New Zealand. Uh, I really think the jury's out on whether the smelter will stay open in the short term. And I think the jury's certainly coming back with an interim decision on whether it stays open in the medium term. And I really think people in Southland and the country have got to think harder about 
our economic future with regards to electricity, and especially Manapuri. We really do. It took 65 years from Peter Hay to the first turning of the turbines at Manapuri. And it took about um, 13 years for the industry itself to actually come to New Zealand and be um, signed up and start constructing the smelter. So the lead-in times are enormous. And the negotiations and the horse trading and the, the financing that has to occur for something like that to happen, really, we should be, have been thinking of alternatives for TY 20 years ago. To start from cold now and come up with an industry to replace TY, you're still looking five, ten years ahead. That's Aaron Fox, and that's the detail for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. Kakite anō. Ka